Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And boy, what an extraordinary weekend. It was Friday or maybe Thursday night that Donald Trump, well, actually, it was a couple days before that, that Donald Trump had authorized Bill Barr to basically do anything he wants. But I believe it was on Friday that we figured out, or that a lot of the country kind of figured out what's actually going on with this. This is the primary speculation that is floating around Washington right now that has so many people seriously freaked out. And I mean seriously freaked out. If you read the Mueller report, the Russian interference in the election were ordered by President Putin himself. And, of course, that being the case, I mean, you know, if, if we discovered that there was a Russian spy inside the U.S. State Department or something, you know, we would be trying to figure out, okay, <laughs> we've got a spy inside the State Department. Who is this person? Because, you know, you arrest them and, you know, spies can be put to death. I mean, in, in a lot of countries, I don't know about the United States, but uh, I'm guessing in Russia, spies can be put to death. So there's somebody inside Putin's inner circle who's got to be sweating bullets right now. And the speculation that I'm hearing, and I, you know, I can't say that this is you know, it's, it's being implied in a lot of news stories. But that basically is that President Putin said to his good buddy, President Trump, why don't you find out who this guy is in my inner circle? Because, you know, he's leaking information that might reflect poorly on you, Donald. And so Trump goes to Barr and says, uh, you know, I want to know who the spy is inside Russia and Barr and, you know, how do I do that? And Barr says, give me the authority to declassify anything. Apparently, this began as a request from Barr, not as an idea from Trump. And so, you know, it's kind of looking like Donald Trump is trying to out an American agent who's inside the Kremlin. And if that's the case, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Okay, Preston tweets, Pelosi is going the way of Neville Chamberlain and those in the House need to remove her as Speaker if she continues to refuse to move on impeachment. Our democracy is at stake and she's worried about optics. I don't think so, Preston. I, I really don't think so. Uh, what Nancy Pelosi knows is that you can't impeach a president until the majority of the country wants you to. It will, I mean, you can have the impeachment vote in the House of Representatives, which is what the Republicans did with Bill Clinton. But the majority of the country did not want Bill Clinton impeached. And therefore, when it got to the Senate, they, could, they couldn't remove him from office. There, there simply wasn't enough momentum. On the other hand, with Nixon, after six weeks of Watergate hearings, the majority of people in the country, two-thirds of the country, realized, yes, Nixon is, in fact, a crook and needs to go. And when that threshold got hit, when the rest of the country was like, holy crap, this guy is actually a crook, that was the point at which Barry Goldwater went to the White House and said to Richard Nixon, buddy, you're going to get impeached, and you may well get prosecuted. You've committed crimes. Now, maybe if you step down, we can negotiate a pardon for you, which is exactly what happened. Jerry Ford pardoned him. I mean, that was the deal. 
and save the nation the trouble of impeachment and don't be the first president to have been removed from office in an impeachment. So what, so what Pelosi knows is that you've got to get public opinion behind you, number one. Number two, Bill Barr totally screwed this up. You know, any effort by the de Democrats to point out Trump's crimes, because while the Mueller report clearly lays out numerous instances of Donald Trump and his campaign lying to the American people and welcoming help from Russia and, and presumably other governments as well. I mean, Russia is at the center of the Mueller report. And then trying to cover it up on numerous occasions. That's the whole obstruction of justice stuff, is trying to shut down the investigation and cover up Trump and his involvement with Russia. And I think what he didn't want us to find out was that he had been lying to the entire country throughout the campaign about the fact that he was negotiating at Trump Tower Moscow. So, you know, the majority of the country doesn't know this stuff because Bill Barr came out and said, there's nothing to see here. Don't look behind the curtain at that man. There's no nothing behind that curtain. And most Americans still think there's nothing behind that curtain. I mean, that's the conventional wisdom in the United States is that no collusion and, you know, they might have had some obstruction of justice, but there wasn't an underlying crime. Now, that doesn't matter, but this is the story that the Republicans are promoting. So what Pelosi knows is that the only way that you can get the whole country to go, holy crap, we should impeach this guy, is by holding hearings where people come out and give testimony, which takes us back to my rant about Mueller in the, in the previous half hour. And the only way that you can do that is if you can get witnesses to show up and testify in public hearings. And that has become problematic. Because Bill Barr and Donald Trump are saying to everybody, you know, Hope Hicks, you know, everybody, you know, you cannot testify before Congress. I will not allow you to. And they've got to get this thing going. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading from the Mueller report today. This is uh, page 48. It's about WikiLeaks and their statements dissembling about the source of stolen materials. Beginning in the summer of 2016, Assange and WikiLeaks made a number of statements about Seth Rich, a former DNC staff member who was killed in July 2016. The statement about Rich falsely implied that he had been the source of the stolen DNC emails. On August 9th, 2016, at WikiLeaks' Twitter account posted, quote, Announce, WikiLeaks has decided to issue a U.S. $20,000 reward for information leading to conviction for the murder of DNC staffer Seth Rich. Likewise, on August 25th, 2016, Assange was asked in an interview, why are you so interested in Seth Rich's killer? And he responded, quote, we're very interested in anything that might be a threat to alleged WikiLeaks sources. The interviewer responded to Assange's statement by commenting, I know you don't reveal your source, but it certainly sounds like you're suggesting a man who leaked information to WikiLeaks was then murdered. Assange replied, quote, if there's someone who's potentially connected to our publication, and that person has been murdered in suspicious circumstances, it doesn't necessarily mean the two are connected. But it is a very serious matter. That type of allegation is very serious, and it's taken very seriously by us." End quote. After the U.S. intelligence community publicly announced its assessment that Russia was behind the hacking operation, Assange continued to deny that the Clinton materials released by WikiLeaks had come from Russian hacking. According to media reports, Assange told the U.S. congressman that the D.C. hack was an inside job, and purported to have, quote, physical proof that Russians did not give materials to Assange. Item C, additional GRU cyber operations. While releasing the stolen emails and documents through DC leaks, Guccifer 2.0, and WikiLeaks, GRU officers continued to target and hack victims linked to the Democratic campaign and eventually to target entities responsible for election administration in several states. Number one, summer and fall 2016 operations targeting Democrat-linked victims. On July 27, 2016, Unit 26165, this is of the GRU, targeted email accounts connected to candidate Clinton's personal office. And there's a bunch of text here redacted by Bill Barr. Earlier that day, candidate Trump made public statements that included the following, quote, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. End quote. The 30,000 emails were apparently a reference to emails described in media accounts as having been stored on a personal server that candidate Clinton had used while serving as Secretary of State. Within approximately five hours of Trump's statement, GRU officers targeted, for the first time, Clinton's personal office. After candidate Trump's remarks, Unit 26165 created and sent malicious links targeting 15 email accounts at the domain 
redacted by Bill Barr, including an email account belonging to Clinton aide redacted by Bill Barr. The investigation did not find evidence of earlier GRU attempts to compromise accounts hosted on this domain. It's unclear how the GRU was able to identify these email accounts, which were not public. Unit 26165 officers also hacked into a DNC account hosted on a cloud computing service, redacted. On September 20th, 2016, the GRU began to generate copies of the DNC data using redacted function designed to allow users to produce backups of databases referred to as redacted snapshots. The GRU then stole these snapshots by moving them to redacted account that they controlled. From there, the copies were moved to GRU-controlled computers. The GRU stole, stole approximately 300 gigabytes of data from the DNC cloud-based account. Number two, intrusions targeting the administration of U.S. elections. In addition to targeting individuals involved in the Clinton campaign, GRU officers also targeted individuals and entities involved in the administration of the elections. Victims included U.S. state and local entities, such as state boards of elections, secretaries of state, and county governments as well as individuals who worked for these entities. The GRU also targeted private technology firms responsible for manufacturing and administering election-related software and hardware, such as voter registration software and electronic polling stations. The GRU continued to target these victims throughout the elections in November 2016. While the investigation identified evidence that the GRU targeted these individuals and entities, the office did not investigate further. The office did not, for instance, obtain or examine servers or other relevant items belonging to these victims. The office understands that the FBI, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the states have separately investigated that activity. By at least the summer of 2016, GRU officers sought access to state and local computer networks by exploiting known software vulnerabilities on websites of state and local government entities. GRU officers, for example, targeted state and local databases of registered voters using a technique known as SQL injection, by which malicious code was sent to the state or local website in order to run commands such as exfiltrating the database contents. In one instance, in approximately June 2016, the GRU compromised the computer network of the Illinois State Board of Elections by exploiting a vulnerability in the SBOE's website. The GRU then gained access to a database containing information on millions of registered Illinois voters and extracted data related to thousands of U.S. voters before the malicious activity was identified. Page 51. The GRU officers scan state and local websites for vulnerabilities. It's the Mueller report. Well, like many people, you probably wondered, you know, why don't they just legalize pot, right? I mean, come on, just just make the stuff legal. It's nobody's ever died of an overdose of it. I, you know, it's 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 therapeutic. It's good stuff. But they haven't, and they're not going to, at least in any time soon. And and it, what it turns out is like one of the most important and useful and therapeutic and you know just kind of good components of pot is something called cadabidiol or CBD. And CBD doesn't get you high. It's not intoxicating. This is the stuff that people were literally moving to Colorado to get in the early days when Colorado first decriminalized marijuana and the, and these, and the fellows were extracting CBD out of it you know, for their children who were having seizures and things. CBD is uh, extraordinary stuff. It's, it's anti-inflammatory and it relieves pain. In my experience, it helps sleep. Um, and the brand that I trust best of CBD, and by the way, this, now they have perfected how to get CBD not just out of marijuana, but also out of marijuana's cousin, hemp. Hemp is high in CBD, and it doesn't have any THC. So it doesn't have the stuff that gets you high, but it does have the stuff that's anti-inflammatory and reduces pain. So the best, in my opinion, the best quality CBD stuff out there is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals. And New Leaf Naturals is uh, highly concentrated. Uh, it's 100% organic. There's no additional ingredients. It's grown right here in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp. So it's pure, it's simple, and totally legal. So to, to hook up with us, to check this out, get over to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. And if you do so, if you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you'll get 30% off and free shipping anywhere in the United States. That's newleafnaturals, newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there is no, no other place. There's no place better than, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com, newleafnaturals.com.
Tom Harmon here with you. We've been, as you know, if you've been watching this show regularly, we've been having problems with our phone system. And in fact, we have a, a new phone system on order, but it's probably going to take a week or so to get here and get installed, that whole song and dance. So our phone system this morning was uh, not behaving well, shall we say. We're going to go to Twitter and YouTube comments and Facebook comments. And, you know, Joyce and Louise will print those out for me and I'll respond to them on the air. Nike nuclear vet, he's responding to Peter Dow and Billy Corbin and me. He says, it's hard to believe we as a country are at this point in history. I do foresee violence between the uh, religious right zealots and the rest of us. Democrats have to hold the administration accountable now, start of the impeachment. I'm not sure that Donald Trump is going to get impeached. I mean, Mitch McConnell over the weekend came out and said, if an impeachment bill comes from the House of Representatives to the Senate, yes, the Constitution does obligate us to take it up and hold a trial in the Senate. But I think Mitch McConnell is figuring, okay, the trial is going to last one minute. We're going to read the impeachment report from the House, and then we'll hold a vote. And that'll be the end of that. So, you know, we'll see. Mark Fisher, can Mueller expect us to believe he doesn't want to testify in public because of politics? Really, I don't buy it. That's interesting, Mark. The explanation that Jerry Nadler gave a week ago on Rachel Maddow's show was in one way reassuring and in another way extremely alarming. And, and frankly, I would add to that that at this point in time, Robert Mueller's preferences are like, so what? I mean, you know, I'm sure when he was the director of the FBI, he didn't want to come, you know, testify before Congress. But, you know, that's part of your job. And for two years, you did this job of being a special prosecutor. Now, you know, what Nadler said essentially was that Robert Mueller does not want to be the guy who is inserting himself into politics, right? He doesn't want to come off as political. And what Mueller knows is that when he testifies, whether it's in public or whether it's in private, and Barr has said, well, if it's in private, there'll still be a transcript available, right? So you can act it out with a puppet show. But that the reason he doesn't want to do it in public is because he knows that he's going to be getting highly partisan, highly political questions, frankly, from both sides. Right? The Democrats are going to be going variations on, okay, tell me what crimes Trump committed and when he committed them. What about this crime? What about this crime? This obstruction? This sure looks like obstruction of justice to me. Do you think that that you know, meets the definition of a crime? If he weren't the president, would he be committing a crime? You know, Those kinds of questions are going to be coming from the Democrats. From the Republicans are going to be questions about, well, we know that Peter Strzok and Lisa Page were having an affair and they were texting each other how much they hated Trump. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? And then, you know, Mueller would have to say, well, yeah, but that never had anything to do with the investigation. That was personal correspondence between two people who were having a, a love affair, you know. And, uh, or not. I mean, you know, he, he, he'll respond however he responds. But this is how it's going to play. I mean, we've seen this with other testimony prior to this point. In fact, we saw this when Barr was supposed to testify before the Judiciary Committee and said, no, I'm not going to come. And they, you know, had a little place card there for him and all this kind of stuff. So basically what Mueller is saying is, if I testify, it's going to come across as political. And, of course, you got a bunch of politicians asking you questions. What do you expect? But, frankly, from my point of view, tough luck. I think that Robert Mueller should still be testifying. Hector, on our YouTube channel, says, Your fascist meatball lard leader is pardoning murders in Iraq, Afghanistan, genocide wars, just the opposite of what you desire. Latte liberalism is not working. Okay, I don't know about latte liberalism. I'm not even sure I know what that is, unless you mean liberals who actually have enough income to be able to afford a latte. And what, conservatives can't afford lattes? I mean, <laughs> come on. Most of your billionaires out there, most of your really rich people out there vote Republican. The latte conservatives. But in any case, yes, our fat behind leader, to use your phrase and clean it up slightly, or large behind, has been thinking about pardoning murders in Iraq. And where this gets really bizarre, and you dig into this story just a little bit, and again, this kind of falls into the category of these things that if Barack Obama had done this, or Bill Clinton had done this, the only two Democratic presidents basically since Reaganism, if either or one of these Democrats had considered pardoning a war criminal, the Republicans would, Amazon would be selling fainting couches wholesale, 
right? They'd be, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's, uh, and Lindsey Graham would be in high dudgeon and, you know, all this stuff. You know, he's a JAG officer, right? He prosecutes people who commit war crimes. And it turns out that it looks like the reason why Donald Trump is thinking of pardoning war criminals is because their lawyer is also his lawyer or has been his lawyer. Now, again, think about this. If this had been Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, can you imagine the meltdown that would be happening right now? Oh, Barack Obama's lawyer is also the lawyer for a war criminal, and now he wants to pardon the war criminal? It doesn't get more corrupt than that. right? That would be an impeachment scandal. That all by itself would be, even if he didn't do it, if he just thought about doing it, it would be an impeachment scandal. It's amazing. Blue No Matter Who on Twitter says, completely agree with your theory, Tom Hartman. I've been thinking the same thing, that Trump is doing the bidding of Putin by giving Barr the authority to out one of our spies in Russia. Despicable that he's okay with throwing an American intelligence officer to the wolves. Again, we don't know that this is the case. But for a long time, we didn't know a lot of things were the case until the Mueller report came out. And now we see 10 or 11 specific instances of Donald Trump obstructing justice and over 100 instances apparently, of Donald Trump or people on his campaign or other members of the Trump crime family interacting aggressively, not just with Russians, but people with, from a whole variety of countries in ways that might influence our elections. And this is just, you know, it's not, not a good thing, right? I don't know how to say it beyond that. It's just plain old flat out, not a good thing. So, and then, uh, oh, my piece, How Republics Die, is still going around. I just liked that. Andrew Zimmern says, Chilling, scary, and brilliantly argued. This is the best piece of its kind I've read in a long time. Great essay by Tom Hartman. Accurate take on American politics. Everyone should read this. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, over on Facebook, Del Fadavi says, Bob Mueller didn't complete his investigation. It was shut down by hiring William Barr to do just that. That's another really important point. And this is something, the only person I see in the media who even mentions this is Rachel Maddow, that we still don't know why Bob Mueller concluded his investigation when and how he did. And I think the big clue to that is the fact that in the Mueller report, there is this line that points out that on numerous occasions, people in the Trump campaign, and Donald Trump himself for that matter, either lied to the investigators, refused to testify to the investigators, destroyed evidence, or in the case of Trump, over 30 times in response to written questions said, I don't remember. Trump suddenly has dementia, right? At least, you know, when it comes to answering Mueller's questions. And so, there's this line in the in the uh, bar report in the <laughs> Mueller report that says a thorough investigation. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this from memory, but it's pretty close to exactly what it says. Because of all these all this obstruction of justice, we weren't able to actually nail down a lot of things. But a thorough investigation by the FBI will no doubt uncover these things or could uncover these things if they're there. I don't recall the exact phrasing. And so the question in my mind is, why didn't the FBI investigate that? Well, it sounds like they got stopped by Bill Barr. Bill Barr, who covered up Iran-Contra for George Herbert Walker Bush and for Ronald Reagan, back when he was Attorney General in 1992, who, who engineered the pardon of Casper Weinberger and Oliver North and uh, Elliot Abrams, who's now down, you know, creating chaos with Venezuela, all this kind of stuff. So, anyhow, Dell says the United States Department of Justice is now under complete control by Bill Barr. Congress and the media keep saying that the Mueller report says this and that when it's heavily redacted. Redaction of one word can reverse the meaning of a sentence. Not. Right? I mean, one word, literally. Bob Mueller wrote the report to be released as is to the public investigators, separate summaries by other investigators knowing exactly what could and could not be seen by the public. After all, Mueller was the head of the FBI and is a former federal prosecutor. Uh, why haven't we seen impeachment? The power of the pardon during which impeachment is temporarily lost. And that's a good point. In my mind, the number one reason 
to actually open a, quote, impeachment inquiry is that it means that Donald Trump can't pardon anybody, including Paul Manafort, who is, you know, I guarantee you, Paul Manafort's figuring, in fact, Paul Manafort in all probability has been told, just hang on until November of 2020. And after the election, whether Donald Trump wins or loses, he's going to pardon you. Because everything right now is to get past that election, right? All this obstruction, all the lawsuits, all the no, you can't testify. It's all about the election. What we're watching right now is a massive cover-up. And it's a massive cover-up that is pretty much identical to the massive cover-up that Donald Trump was doing before the election. When he was covering up the fact that he was trying to negotiate Trump Tower Moscow right up to the day of the election. When he was covering up the fact that he was, that he was hiding a year-long affair with Playboy Bunny Karen McDougal, who thought that he was in love with her. And this was all right after Barron was born, right? And that he was covering up a one-night stand with Stormy Daniels, a porn star. During which he apparently did not use any kind of protection. So, you know, cover up Don, Don the Con, cover up Don the Con rolls along. Okay, we're going to check in with Cole Stangler live from Paris here after the break. And then I'll continue to be taking your comments on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're reading from page 50. This is under the section, Intrusions Targeting the Administration of U.S. Elections. The GRU is the Russian Intelligence Service, or a Russian Intelligence Service. GRU officers, redacted by Bill Barr, scanned state and local websites for vulnerabilities. For example, over a two-day period in July 2016, GRU officers, redacted by Bill Barr, for vulnerabilities on websites of more than two dozen states. And then the rest of the page and all the footnotes are redacted. Page 51. The top paragraph is redacted. Similar redacted for vulnerabilities continued throughout the election. Unit 74455 also sent spear phishing emails to public officials involved in election administration and personnel at companies involved in voting technology. In August 2016, GRU officers targeted employees of Redacted, a voting technology company that developed software used by numerous U.S. counties to manage voter rolls and installed malware on the company network. Similarly, in November 2016, the GRU sent spear phishing emails to over 120 email accounts used by Florida County officials responsible for administering the 2016 U.S. election. The spear phishing emails contained an attached Word document coded with malicious software, commonly referred to as a Trojan, that permitted the GRU to access the infected computer. The FBI was separately responsible for this investigation. We understand the FBI believes that this operation enabled the GRU to gain access to the network of at least one Florida county government. The office did not independently verify that belief and, as explained above, did not undertake the investigative steps that would have been necessary to do so. D. Trump campaign and the dissemination of hacked materials. The Trump campaign showed interest in WikiLeaks's release of hacked materials throughout the summer and fall of 2016 and the rest of that page is redacted page 52 the top half of the page is redacted this is contacts with the campaign about wikileaks on june 12 2016 assange claimed in a televised interview to quote have emails relating to hillary clinton which are pending publication end quote but provided no additional context in debriefings with the office former deputy campaign chairman rick gates said that redacted Gates recalled candidate Trump being generally frustrated that the Clinton emails had not been found. 
Paul Manafort, who would later become campaign chairman, redacted by Bill Barr. And then the footnotes on that page are redacted, too. Moving along to page 53. Michael Cohen, former executive vice president of the Trump Organization and special counsel to Donald J. Trump, told the office that he recalled an incident in which he was in candidate Trump's office in Trump Tower. And then the rest of that is redacted. Cohen further told the office that after WikiLeaks' subsequent release of stolen DNC emails in July 2016, candidate Trump said to Cohen something to the effect of, and then that part is redacted by Bill Barr. According to Gates, Manafort expressed excitement about the release redacted by Bill Barr. Manafort, for his part, told this office that shortly after WikiLeaks' July 22nd release, Manafort also spoke with candidate Trump, and the rest of that is redacted by Bill Barr. Manafort also, redacted by Bill Barr, wanted to be kept appraised of any redacted by Bill Barr. It's page 53. Of any development with WikiLeaks and separately told Gates to keep in touch, redacted by Bill Barr, about future WikiLeaks releases. According to Gates, by the late summer of 2016, the Trump campaign was planning a press strategy, a communications campaign, and messaging based on the possible release of Clinton emails by WikiLeaks, redacted by Bill Barr. While Trump and Gates were driving to the LaGuardia airport, redacted by Bill Barr, shortly after the call, candidate Trump told Gates that more releases of damaging information would be coming. Next paragraph redacted by Bill Barr, the next paragraph redacted, the next paragraph redacted. Corsi is an author who holds a doctorate in political science. In 2016, Corsi also worked for the media outlet WorldNet Daily. And then the rest of page 54 is redacted by Bill Barr. Page 55, first paragraph redacted by Bill Barr. Corsi told the office during interviews that he must have previously discussed Assange with Malik, redacted by Bill Barr, redacted by Bill Barr. According to Malik, Corsi asked him to put Corsi in touch with Assange, whom Corsi wished to interview. Malik recalled that Corsi also suggested that individuals in the orbit of UK politician Nigel Farage might be able to contact Assange and ask if Malik knew them. Malik told Corsi that he would think about the request, but made no actual attempt to connect Corsi with Assange. And the rest of page 55 is redacted. Page 56. Malik stated to investigators that beginning in or about August 2016, he and Corsi had multiple FaceTime discussions with WikiLeaks redacted by Bill Barr, had made a connection to Assange, and that the hacked emails of John Podesta would be released prior to Election Day and would be helpful to the Trump campaign. In one conversation, in or around August or September 2016, Corsi told Malik that the release of the Podesta emails was coming, after which, quote, we are going to be in the driver's seat. And then the rest of that page is redacted by Bill Barr. Page 57, the entire page 57 is redacted by Bill Barr. Page 58, it opens with a redaction by Bill Barr. We'll continue. It's the Mueller Report. On the line with us is Cole Stangler, our old buddy in Paris, Paris-based journalist and contributor to The Nation, Jacobin. Louise and I saw him over the weekend on France 24, a whole bunch. Of course, he's living in Paris now. Cole Stangler, S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R.com is his website. You can also tweet him at Cole Stangler. Cole, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's great having you with us. So the European elections, first of all, you want to give us a quick summary of what happened? Right, so this, this Sunday was the European elections for European Parliament, and this is Parliament that sits in Brussels and Strasbourg that is officially part of the legislative branch of the European Union. And elections took place across the member states and actually including the United Kingdom, despite the fact that they will apparently be leaving the European Union as, as um, in, in October, presumably at, at the latest. So we'll see about that. Elections took place across the, the continent and the UK. And there was a lot of fear that the far right was going to, to have a very strong result. And the far right did indeed improve upon its result in 2014, but um, across the board, the Liberals also performed pretty well, and and uh, the two main blocks that have dominated European political life, the Social Democrats on the center-left and on the center-right, the European People's Party also lost some seats, so people are still trying to make sense of the result. It is a massive election. Mm. I think if you, if, you, if you take the entirety of the European Union, it comes out to the second largest democratic election after India. So a really massive election, and participation was also up um, from, pre from, from the previous year, from 2014. So just over half of, of right. eligible voters participated. So Let me share my take on this with you, Cole, and have you reality test this, okay? 
my sense of this, having been around politics since I was a kid, and that was a long time ago, is that when everything's going good, people tend not to pay attention to politics. They're off, you know, doing their job or working or pursuing relationships or meditating or, you know, discovering new restaurants, but they don't pay that much attention to politics. But when things go to hell, people suddenly start paying a lot of attention to politics. And we have seen now in the United States, you know, almost 40 years of Reaganism. Uh, in the UK, it's been 40, I think, one years of Thatcherism. And in the EU, uh, uh, the consequences of the, of the uh, common currency, anyway, um, have really uh, taken a bite out of some of the poorer countries, Spain, Italy, whatnot. And, and so the, the, the bottom line is that working people, whether it's in the United States or whether it's in Europe, working people have really taken a hit. In fact, there was a report this morning that just came out that in the United States, uh, wages are actually lower than they were 50 years ago, as of you know, today. And, and you know, it's, it's true in many parts of the EU, particularly the wealthier parts where, you know, low-wage labor has, has come in. I mean, this is the thing that stimulated Brexit. And so what happens is that the, the so-called middle, you know, people don't, you know, all that much, if everything's going fine, people don't all that much care. If there's a few politicians getting rich on the side or maybe some, some of their buddies are getting some sweetheart deals, and you know, hey, that's just the price you pay for everything going well. But when things go to, go to hell, when things are not going well, that's the point at which people say, no, wait a minute, we want to actually do something about this. And the groups that do something that challenges the status quo are not the, quote, center, because the center is almost by definition the status quo. They're the groups on the far right and the far left, in quotes. And, and so what we're seeing right now with these EU elections, where the far right and far left, particularly the far left, have acquired much more say in the European Parliament, and the center has, has dropped somewhat, in my opinion, is a, a good thing. I see this as citizen engagement. I see this as people getting pissed off. I see this as people getting involved, and, and that it, in all probability, is going to lead to you know, some kind of consequential and hopefully positive change. I mean, we saw the same thing in the 1930s, only the left wasn't particularly strong at that time. And so instead we had the rise of the right, which was, you know, the fascism in Italy, Spain, and Germany. So what do you think about that take? I think you're certainly right to some extent where, you know, people don't tend to pay attention to European elections. The parliament doesn't have that much power, it, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. The, the European Commission has to propose legislation. Parliament can only up, up or, or downvote if they don't get to propose their own legislation. So, and, and sure enough, we did see participation go up a little bit for, for 2019. So I, I agree with you there. On the other hand, the, 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 the left-wing groups, the far left, um, some of the more social democratic left groups didn't, didn't perform that well. Um, it depends on the country. In, in, in Spain, the, the socialists have performed uh, decently. Podemos as well, which is a little bit further to the left, did perform okay. But certainly down by compared to a few years ago. So across the board, the left really, really sort of struggled in the latest round of elections. And unfortunately, the momentum for the kind of anti-establishment sort of politics that you're talking about, challenging Brussels, some of, some, some of which, you know, should be challenged for, for some very good reasons, that momentum tends to be situated on, on the right, not just the right, but really on, on the far right. And so we, you know, we see major countries, founding countries of the European Union. When you think about, you know, France, Germany, and Italy, the, the three big pillars of the European Union, two of those three countries had parties of the far right, or at least coming from the far right initially, leading the, the, the elections. In France, it's obviously the National Rally, formerly the National Front, led by Marine Le Pen. In Italy, you have the Lega Party, led by Matteo Salvini, the interior minister, who's acting as a sort of shadow prime minister in, in the coalition government in Italy. Not to mention what's going on in the United Kingdom, where you have Brexit dominating the conversation, and, and the party that came in first in the United Kingdom is the Brexit party. Now, granted, the UK obviously will be slated to leave the European Union by, by October. Nevertheless, you look at the, the big picture, and, and it, it's, it's kind of frightening when you think about Brexit party leading the UK, the National Rally leading, leading in France, and the Lega party leaving in Italy. This is the state of the European Union, the, the, you know, the supposed beacon of, of stability and democracy for, for the West. So things are certainly not going well. And I think some, some liberals looking at the results of, of Sunday have tried to, and they've looked at, the, they've looked at what's happened. And it, it's true, you, could, you, you can say the far right perhaps didn't perform as well as, 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 as it could have. You know, in Germany, for instance, the Alternative for Germany party uh, got just a little bit over 10% of the vote. It could have been more than that. 
liberals are saying, oh, look at look at the results here. Things could have been a lot worse. Yeah, the Greens became the new kingmakers, didn't they? Exactly. At least that's the way exactly. it's being portrayed on. Uh, that's what I saw in France 24 this weekend. Exactly. I was I was just about to mention the the the, the Greens and and you know it it is true that the Green Party did do well in in a number of states, but if you look at the gains that the Green Party made. The Greens basically picked up, if I'm not mistaken, 19, 20 seats, about 19 seats that, that the Greens have picked up, at least at the last time I saw the, the formula being applied. That's 19 seats. Now, 10 of those seats are coming from the United Kingdom already, which is supposedly leaving the UK. The other seats, a lot of them are coming from France and Germany. And I think, you know, it's very difficult to analyze European politics on a broad scale because each country has its own history, its own political traditions. And I think the Greens succeeded in France and Germany for, for maybe similar reasons, but I think those those remain pretty pretty linked to the country's individual political situations. Well, yeah, and, and, and the Green Party was started by Patrick Kelly back in the nineteen what sixties in Germany, was it not? Right, and the Green the Greens have historically performed very very well in Germany. And now in, in France, what happened with the Greens is people are voting for the Greens because they're basically, from what I can make of it, from from reading reading the polls and from talking to people as well. The Greens got a lot of support from disillusioned uh, left-wing voters and also from some disillusioned Macron supporters. If you look at, 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 at polls, you know, in 2017 in the French presidential elections, the big player on the French left was Jean-Luc Mélenchon of La, of La France Insoumise, so rebellious France is, is the way that mm -hmm. I translate that in any case. Mélenchon was the big kingmaker on the French left in 2019, so on Sunday for this European vote, only about a third of his supporters, according to, ex to, to, to election day studies, only about a third of Mélenchon voters from 2017 actually stuck with the France means Others voted for the Green Party. So you have disillusionment on the left. So are you suggesting that the rise of the far right is more consequential than the rise of the far left? In your mind, what is the significance of the center collapsing, as it were? Or do you think that that whole narrative is overblown? Well, I, I think it depends on how you classify the Greens. I think if you look at it, and the Greens can be kind of a tricky animal to understand. It depends on the country, but overall, if you look at the how the Greens historically have approached the European Union, I'm not attempting to criticize the Greens. I think I think you just need to look at what they stand for and analyze them from that position. But the Greens are not really a radical party. I wouldn't really call them a, a far-left party. I would call them more of a left, center-left party. Mm. One of the main criteria by which you can judge that is their approach to the European union regulations and directives and the rules concerning the fiscal discipline that's applied to countries. So this part of European law, countries cannot run budget deficits that extend beyond 3% of GDP. And this is seen by many critics on the left, and, and not only on the left for that matter, many critics as a way of hampering public investment. Right. If a government proposes, for instance, a massive spending plan to update infrastructure in the country or improving public transit for you know improving a train system pretty quickly or almost certainly those proposals are going to run up against european regulations that prevent states from running budget deficits beyond a certain amount mm -hmm. and the greens haven't really challenged that rule in the european union by the same token they haven't challenged a lot of these directives and regulations concerning privatization the european union has required states to to privatize their rail systems to privatize their energy systems to privatize in some cases the postal systems and the greens haven't really shown a lot of opposition to that program now hmm. i think obviously the greens are preferable to people like marine le pen and victor orban do you think that's because they're just focused on the environment rather than you know the general political environment as it were I think that could be part of it. I think it'd be interesting to ask the Greens what their current position is now going to be in this kind of new... Well, it's going to vary from uh, country to country, isn't it? Sure, it does. You know, in France, one of the criticisms of the Greens is that people will say, how can you attempt to implement this ambitious ecological agenda, environmental agenda, without actually taking on these rules that hamper public investment? How can you talk about having the transition away from fossil fuels when you're handcuffed by rules that limit public investment? That's been one of the main criticisms. That's a huge one. It'll be interesting, though, to see what happens with these Greens now in Parliament to see how they position themselves vis-a-vis -vis the right, vis-a-vis -vis the old-school left, the Social Democrats, and even the far left, which still has some sway, though, though not too much in Parliament. What is the far left? What party, if not the Greens, what party would you identify as the far left? In terms of the, I'm not the one to come up with this, but it's in terms of the blocks, the Greens have their own block, and there is a block of united left parties that includes the left party in Germany. What is your main takeaway from the elections 
that were held, the EU elections that were held on Sunday. I mean, we were talking about the quote far left, how the Greens you know, are not pushing back against EU rules that you can't have your debt greater than 3% of GDP, which is going to inhibit a lot of countries from like, you know, building out smart grids and massive solar infrastructure projects and things like that. Where is this all going? I mean, it's starting to look to a lot of observers like the EU is on the verge of or has begun a process that over a period of time, whether it's years or decades, is going to lead to the disintegration of the EU. What think you? So disintegration might be a little too quick to jump to that immediately, but I certainly don't, I'm not convinced of this narrative that quote-unquote the center is holding, as some liberals have suggested since Sunday on the elections. And I think that the trend I'm going to elaborate on, I think it's more pronounced in certain countries than others. But if you look at a country like France, which is you know one of the major countries of the EU, really, with, with Germany, if you look at the situation in France, there's a very bleak new political divide that's taking shape. And I, I try to write about this in my piece for the nation that, that should be coming out soon. There's a divide in French politics between Macron and Le Pen. So uh, on Macron representing the kind of pro-European Union, pro-business, social liberalism. On the other hand, Marine Le Pen of the far right in the national rally representing this kind of anti-European support for the nation state and ostensibly protecting workers. And Macron speaks about a divide of progressives versus nationalists. Le Pen speaks about a divide between patriots and globalists. But at the end of the day, these are basically compatible visions. This is the clash that both of them want, that these two camps want. And the really frightening thing, I think, for those of us in France and for that matter across the European Union who believe in an alternative, we're feeling a little squeezed out of the, of the conversation, of the debate. If you're someone on the left who thinks that it should be acceptable to both support uh, French workers whose families have, have spent generations in the country and live in rural areas and also think it's okay to be supporting immigrants and want to be taxing the rich, you don't have a platform that's standing up for those kinds of views. And it'll be interesting to see if something emerges. But that, that's, that's the real fear that I have and a lot of people who think like me have. And, and um, That makes yeah, a lot of sense. That here. makes a lot of sense. Cole, we're out of time. But thank you so much for being with us, Cole. Thank you. Great talking with you. Cole Stangler, check out his website, colestangler.com. You can tweet him at Cole Stangler, C-O-L-E-S-T-A-N-G-L-E-R. On the line with us is Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us today from the UN in New York. Luke is brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. Luke, welcome back to the program. A new survey says 10 countries are responsible for half of global tax avoidance. How harmful is this? It's really harmful to the global economy and to the cause of trying to lower inequality around the world. What we are seeing, this is a a great report out by the Tax Justice Network, which is based in the United Kingdom. I've uh, paid close attention to the work they've done for for many years. They say that the top 10 countries uh, that have done the most to proliferate corporate tax avoidance. Four of them are British territories or dependencies, the Virgin Islands, Bermuda, and the Cayman Islands, in addition to Jersey. And then it's the Netherlands and Luxembourg, the rounding out the top 10, Singapore, the Bahamas. Switzerland, yes. Luxembourg, Singapore, Bahamas, and Hong Kong. And that if you put all this together, those 10 jurisdictions are responsible for 52% of the world's corporate tax avoidance. And if you look at those countries alone, this survey found that their lowest corporate tax rate hovers at just about half of 1%, which is just stunningly low. And, And all told, this survey found that that drains about $500 billion in corporate tax income from countries that ought to be collecting it. That's enough, according to this survey, to pay the entire United Nations humanitarian aid budget 20 times over. And that is a budget that is severely underfunded year to year. And that might be a little misleading. I think that money ought to be better decided how it would be spent by the countries where employees are, where software for multinational corporations is being utilized, where capital is being deployed. But that's not usually how it works. Uh, These are jurisdictions that uh, basically, uh, through clever accounting, corporate tax uh, can be basically moved to, to get a very, very low rate, or in some cases, as we saw with Amazon, tax rebates at a global level. (laughs) So so companies like Amazon and Apple and Google are kind of famous for this, right? And so obviously in the United States, any company that is large enough and has enough, you know, billions of dollars to have all the lawyers and do the whole song and dance is able to pull this off. What about companies that are based in Europe? Does the EU, how do they they view this? 
or individual European countries? I mean, is anybody pushing back on this? Well, at the European Union level, there have been efforts to punish specific or countries that create these sorts of systems. I know Ireland got a big fine from the European Union uh, in recent years. There have been efforts to do the same for Luxembourg. I was listening to the European Commission debates several weeks ago. It doesn't look like Marguerite Vestager, who is the European Union Commission sort of competition minister, is going to be elected the EU Commission president, which I think is too bad from this perspective. She was advocating for a minimum corporate tax rate across the European Union, which would basically wipe out the ability for someplace like Ireland to just completely race to the bottom and become a place where companies like Apple gravitate towards. But we're not, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, what the Tax Justice Network is proposing is what they sort of call a unitary taxation approach where you calculate a multinational company's profits, you look at where capital is deployed, where sales are occurring, where employees are housed, and you sort of distribute the tax burden accordingly, and that that would really spread the wealth and the taxation. We're very far away from that. And I think there is, according to this report, some hypocrisy at the European Union level, which show that despite talking about this issue quite a lot, that the EU countries, excluding the United Kingdom, which, so again, that's a, the biggest aggressor here, but even excluding the UK, the EU is responsible for about a third of the world's corporate tax avoidance, according to this report. So they don't get away wow. scot-free, unfortunately. Amazing. Now, meanwhile, the US is, you know, struggling to convince countries to attend an investment conference for Palestine next month. I know that there are a number of Israeli companies that are based in the West Bank, you know, providing employment to Palestinians. And there are people in the United States who are, you know, opposed to Israel's Gaza policy and suggesting people should boycott them and things like that. What's the deal? I thought most of the companies that were operating in the Palestinian territories in Gaza and the West Bank were primarily Israeli companies. Am I completely wrong? You know, I don't know really too much detail about the distribution of the ownership within the territories. I will say, as of a few days ago, there is only one Palestinian individual who is attending this event, Ashraf al-Jabari, who, according to Axios, has close ties to the U.S. ambassador and Israeli settler lobbies and has publicly supported the Israeli annexation of the West Bank. So if that's the, uh, the Palestinian representative of this conference, I can say he's hardly indicative of the population he'll be there or purportedly to represent. Right. We've heard some positive RSVPs to this conference from Bahrain, who's obviously hosting it, so that's not a surprise. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, and Qatar. That's a little bit interesting just because it, it shows probably how much of the U.S. leverage, you know, the U.S. leverage was needed over uh, Saudi Arabia to score that invitation, considering that uh, Saudi Arabia... Is Arabia's Israel concerned blockade. that if a bunch of Arab countries start doing manufacturing in occupied yeah. territories, that it's going to be harder for Israel to, shall we say, regulate or police those territories if there's a bunch of Qataris and Saudis in there running companies? Well, we would need to see the political elements of the peace deal, which we're not going to get until well after this. What we're told is that we're going to have this conference in the 25th and 26th of June. In the days leading up to it, basically, once countries have already decided whether or not they're going to attend this Palestinian conference, the White House will release the economic details of the peace plan. But then only once money's been put on the table and countries have sort of given a verbal buy-in to the peace plan, are they going to learn what the you know capital arrangements are, what the sovereignty provisions are. And that's right. I think we have a real problem. I would say in 20 seconds, the country to watch over the next few days, Jared Kushner is heading there, is Jordan, which guarantees the Islamic sites uh, in Jerusalem, is the major donor to the Palestinians, and a majority of whom citizens are Palestinians. They've yet to RSVP for this conference. If they're in, I think this could go well. If they're out, this whole thing will fall apart. Amazing. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News, Chief Foreign Correspondent for Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Thank you, Luke. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. 
Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. One of the things that most concerns me that I'm not hearing any conversation about, frankly, in the media, outside of you know one or two hosts on MSNBC who occasionally bring this up, principally Rachel Maddow, is the question of, you know, when Bill Barr came to Donald Trump and said, give me the power to unclassify, to declassify pretty much anything I want. You know, when that happened, why? The main reason that's being given in the media and by Barr and by Trump is that uh, there was some hanky-panky going on when the FBI decided to investigate the Donald Trump campaign to figure out if they were colluding with Russia to try and steal an election. And in fact, George Papadopoulos was having dinner with an ambassador. And by the way, an absolutely fascinating profile of George Papadopoulos in the Washington Post over the weekend. Pretty sure it was the Post. might have been the Times, but I'm pretty sure it was the Post. In any case, Papadopoulos was having drinks with this I believe he was the Australian ambassador to the United Kingdom, but, you know, whatever it was, he was an Australian ambassador. And, you know, he was working for the Trump campaign at the time as a foreign policy advisor. And he said, you know, the Russians are going to help the Trump campaign, right? They're going to help Donald Trump become president, or words to that effect. And the ambassador was like, whoa, the Russians are messing in the American election? And so this ambassador contacts the U.S. State Department, you know, ambassador to ambassador kind of thing, and says, uh, you may have a problem here. Let me tell you what I just heard. And so they go to the FBI, and the FBI says, well, let's check this out. And they call in Papadopoulos and say, what's going on here? And they start pulling on this thread, and they discover that we're, there were like over 100, and, as I recall, over 150 contacts. It might have been 135, 153, whatever it was. Well over 100 contacts between you know, Russian oligarchs, Russian officials, or people representing Russian officials on the one hand, and Trump campaign people on the other. And there was this, you know, mysterious change in the Republican Party platform right, right around the time of the convention where all of a sudden the Republicans went from being, oh, you know, Russia's the great enemy. Keep in mind, that was what Mitt Romney campaigned on in 2012 was that, you know, Russia's going to eat our lunch. Look out for Russia. That was the Republican position. In 2016, they not only did away with that, they reversed it in their platform. And particularly, you know, the outrage that was being expressed by both parties, frankly, the Republicans and the Democrats, that Russia had an ex-Crimea. And so the whole, you know, Russia-Ukraine thing. And so the Republican Party changed their policy on this. And so the theory you know, that the, the FBI was looking into that, hey, is there a quid pro quo here? Is Donald Trump, you know, why is the Republican Party all of a sudden become the party that's like pro-Russian? When literally just a month before Donald Trump declared his candidacy, the Republican Party was very anti-Russia. Now, you know, for the record, I, you know, I'd like to make it very clear. I think that we should have good relations with as many countries in the world as we can, including Russia. I mean, you know, they're a major nuclear power. It'd be a good thing if we had a good relationship with them. But that said, if you're going to have a, a relationship with somebody, both parties have to act in good faith. Now, Russia would say that we've not been acting in good faith ever since we expanded NATO in violation of an agreement that had been worked out between George Herbert Walker Bush and Mikhail Gorbachev, that, you know, the expansion of NATO that happened in the 90s was a violation of that. That's the Russian story, and it's a true story. And on the American side, you know, we'd say, you know, Russia has been messing in our politics and, and sowing discord in the United States and in other democratic countries. And so we're upset about that. So, you know, having a good relationship. But, but in any case, the FBI is looking at this going, you know, what's going on? So that's kind of the backstory, right? This is how we got here. The forward story now is one of the things that, you know, part of the, you know, the FBI began this investigation, figure out what's going on, when in, in an effort to shut down that investigation, Donald Trump fired James Comey, 
And he said this on national television, you know, that he did that because of the Russia investigation. He fired the director of the FBI as a way of stopping the investigation. And at that point, Jeff Sessions, the AG, had recused himself, and Rod Rosenstein was the assistant AG. And so it was in his lap, and Rod Rosenstein said, you know, this investigation needs to continue. This is a legitimate investigation. We're going to appoint an independent prosecutor, a uh, special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, and we're going to find out what the hell happened. All, you would say, reasonable stuff. Well, now Donald Trump is saying, well, back there in 2015 and 2016, the Obama administration, right, because, I mean, Obama was president. The Obama administration was trying to spy on my campaign and me and my family. And, in fact, he's made the charge out in public during the election. He said that Obama was spying, was tapping his phones in Trump Tower. Well, there was a fairly thorough investigation of that, both inside the FBI and by Republicans in Congress, and there was no evidence of any phone taps. No, they weren't spying on Donald Trump. They were spying on the Russians. And some of the people in Trump's campaign who were hanging out with the Russians, like Papadopoulos. But in any case, so Trump has got this storyline that he's the victim of this, you know, so-called witch hunt. And, you know, therefore, let's go after the bad guys, right? The people in the FBI who started the investigation. And there were these two FBI agents, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, who were having an affair, and they were texting back and forth just personal stuff. And among that personal stuff was how much they disliked Donald Trump and how, you know, how concerned they were that he might become president. But they were not acting on that as FBI agents. There's absolutely no evidence they were acting on that as F F FBI agents. And in fact, if it wasn't for Devin Nunes releasing this private information, you know, that came out of, I believe, grand jury hearings, we would never even know about this. But, you know, it got released and it got over, all over Fox News. And, and uh, you know, last night, Louise and I were driving along and on our Sirius XM radio turned on Fox News for, as we do periodically from time to time for as long as we can stomach it. And here's Sean Hannity talking about exactly what I'm talking about right now. So as you dig deeper into this, as Mueller began digging into this, what's going on here between Trump or the Trump campaign anyway and Russia, a couple of things came out. One, Trump was negotiating for Trump Tower of Moscow right up until the election right up until he won the election. I mean, that was the point at which it was like, oops, guess we're going to have to put this on hold for four years. So, you know, he was doing that, so that might account for why he was trying to curry favor with Russia. This was going to be the biggest, most profitable of all the Trump properties. It was going to mean hundreds of millions of dollars for Donald Trump. And it's increasingly looking like Donald Trump is not only not a billionaire, but that he's in debt to the tune of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. That he literally has no money. He may have assets, and he's living off the cash flow of those assets. You know, I mean, assets like hotels and things. But he doesn't have billions of dollars in the bank, which is why he's like doing this money-grubbing thing constantly, stiffing contractors and everybody else. So anyhow, Mueller digs into this, and one of the things that Mueller finds as he's digging into it is that there is, in Moscow, inside Putin's Kremlin, Somebody who is close to Vladimir Putin, President Putin, who is feeding intelligence information to the CIA. Now, we don't know if this is an actual somebody who was planted there by the CIA, or if this is somebody who didn't like Putin and decided to flip and started, you know, reached out to the CIA, or what. I mean, we have no idea. It could be a highly placed, you know, it could be one of Putin's best buddies, or it could be a secretary in the office. But that's the person, that human, that human intelligence source inside the Kremlin fed the information to the CIA, and it's that Mueller used to come right out and say, not just the indictment of the officer, of the Russians, but to just literally come right out and say, there is interference in the American election that made Donald Trump president by Russia, or that helped make Donald Trump president by Russia. That interference was ordered by Putin himself. Well, okay, since then, we now know, it's been about a year since we learned this, so, you know, we know that we've got a spy inside Russia. Well, who's the guy who most wants to find out who that spy is more than anybody else on Earth? Vladimir Putin. But maybe Donald Trump wants to find out, too, so that that spy can be imprisoned or executed, because, you know, if that guy's got stuff on Putin, he's got stuff on Trump. 
if Trump was trying to, you know, I mean, Trump was lying to all of us throughout the election. He was trying to build a hotel in Moscow. He was trying to curry favor with Putin in order to build that hotel in Moscow. And he literally lied to every rally where he brought this up. He was lying to all of his supporters. He was lying to all of us. And so the question is, is this ability of Bill Barr to declassify intelligence basically a smokescreen for an attempt to find this spy and kill him? Or find this spy and, and out him so that he can be arrested? Or she? I mean, you know, the, the, the question, what, you know, what's going on here? And how's it going on and all that kind of stuff. I don't think this question is being asked enough. I mean, if a Democrat were in the White House, if Barack Obama was doing this, the Republicans and Fox News would be screaming, oh, he's trying to get an American asset in Moscow killed. Is that what's going on? As I said, I don't know, but there are, I think more people need to be raising this question. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 